I'm the Property Funder, better known as Michael Dean, and this is the Property Funder podcast. I'm a successful entrepreneur, investor, NED and advisor. As co-founder of Avermore Capital, I'm best known for having financed over a billion pounds of property developments and investments by value during my career so far. During my time in business, I've come across an incredibly broad spectrum of successful people all with their own unique experiences working in a variety of industries. I want to speak to these people and learn more about them. I'm not looking to have the world's biggest podcast, so if just one person benefits from what my guests have to say, then that to me would look like success. And if you are that one person, then you should probably not tell anyone about this. Hi, welcome to the Property Funder podcast. And on this episode, we have got Mike joining us. Before we start speaking to Mike, I'd just like to remind you if you are listening to us on Spotify, Apple Music, or YouTube, can you please subscribe, like, and give us a five star rating uh, so that all of these fantastic interviewees, just like Mike, uh, can have the maximum exposure that they deserve. Now, Mike. What's your full name? What's your business and our other interests, which is relevant in this case? And please describe what your business does. Hi, Uh, this is very strange, by the way, being on the receiving end, because until very recently, I ran a podcast for a long time. And and having just watched you do the intro, I've had these flashbacks. I do the intro every time. So I'm in awe, Michael. So my name is Mike Reader. Uh, I have two intros, which I now have to do when I go to those kind of weird business dinners that everyone ends up going to when you sit and talk about stuff. So intro number one, my name is Mike Reader. I am a global director for work winning at an organization called Mace Consult. So anyone in the UK property sector will know Mace. We built the Shard, we built the Olympics, we're building Euston Station. But Mace Consult is Mace's consultancy arm. We have four and a half thousand people around the world working in every geography. Um, and we are global program and program and project delivery consultants. So we primarily focus on major programs around the world and I lead all our work winning, um, which includes bidding proposals, pipeline management, positioning um, with our amazing marketing and business unit teams. My second intro is I'm Mike Reader. I am Labour's parliamentary candidate for Northampton South. I'm standing for a fairer, more prosperous and greener Northampton. Uh, After 13 years of Conservatives in control, we've had 10 million pounds of public money going missing through a loan to the football company that was facilitated by the the council at the time. The council going bankrupt in our area. Um, Northampton has the worst air pollution in the country, 189 cigarettes a year is the equivalent of me living there. Um, And it's an area that desperately needs change and needs uh, a Labour government to bring forward progressive, radical policies and ideas to make people's lives better. So, um, yeah, that's me. I, I want to go straight into that air quality stat that you just said about Northampton. Um, how is that even possible? I and mean, I, 
we funded a development in Northampton, which is recent. Uh, the loan's recently been repaid, and um, you know, <laughs> I, I I could say I was standing there thinking, God, this is really poor air quality, and, and I'm suffering from really bad air pollution. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's spending a lot of time in London, and you know, I live underneath the Heathrow flight path, so I know what <laughs> I my my set my my instinct isn't. When I'm in so Northampton, Northampton is, is, Northampton is, is more polluted than London. So London, there was, a, there was a study, and London was fifth. Birmingham is like eighth. Nottingham was second. Um, part of it, a, a big part of its geography, um, actually. So we are in a valley, and there's a lot of pollution that comes from, uh, you know, the, the West Midlands and the, and the East Midlands that comes down into the valley in Northampton. But a large part of it is road. We're surrounded by the A14, um, the M1 um big amount of logistics um around the town um and then poor design of the town centers there's a lot of queuing traffic and a, a horrendous example is from about eight o'clock in the morning till six o'clock at night there is consistent queuing traffic at traffic lights outside of our maternity ward at northampton general hospital so those those kids are born into um, air pollution you know petrol fumes diesel fumes from the moment they're born so Northampton is a really interesting one because um, there's rural areas. So you'd look at Northampton and think, oh, it's quite a rural town. Um, I even got approached to speak on a panel about rural housing. I was like, you know, we're the biggest town in the UK now. Um, but uh, the town centre particularly really struggles. And that's kind of partly stuff we're going to have to really struggle with, which is geography, which will bring mean we have to look at natural solutions to dealing with that part of that. A big part of that is transport logistics and, and, and car fumes. Yeah. I mean, you talk about the town centre of, of Northampton and um, obviously it's a county town. It has a county named after uh, named after it as well. Um, I always had this vision of Northampton as a child, um, you know, generally being curious about UK geography. But I always had this sort of impression of Northampton as being quite, quite leafy and quite nice and, you know, kind of almost not posh but you know what I mean like quite middle class and um actually you know going into the center of north uh, the, of Northampton town it is I, I mean I, maybe I'm being unfair but my impressions you know it certainly would have shattered my childhood impressions of of the place it's it's it's, it's, one, of your, it's, it's one of your typical um kind of typical east midlands west midlands even north of england towns where there's a big industrial center and i live in the center i live in a terraced house um off one of the main roads called wellingborough road you know and it's all old factory housing there's the old factories which are now blocks of flats and you're right the town center has been decimated it's got one of those kind of early 2000s big architect's vision of we'll knock everything down and rebuild everything and if we build it they will come designed at a time when people did nine to five in the office five days a week and mm. if you brought a load of workers into the center of the office it would, it would transform your high street overnight uh what's happened is there's a development down the road called rushton lakes where i used to live in rushton which has drawn all of the um shopping traffic out this amazing it's phenomenal actually you know out of town shopping center retail center uh cinema every type of fun thing you can think of trampolines golf t-rex restaurant where you eat in between being eaten trying to avoid being eaten by tyrannosaurus rexes and the town centers are decimated and, and there's just been no vision for it and there's just been kind of hit and hope that if we if they've got a big developer and you and i will have seen these massive development schemes that get a big anchor developer and they never go anywhere or take five times as long as people think it will um it's stalled 
and there's just nothing you know it's, it's really sad there's, there's not a lot left in the town center um and in the way of kind of anchor stores or people to go in for it's got we've got quite a good nightlife because we've got a good student population and there's a lot of independent bars and clubs and 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 eateries so that's quite nice but um it the town the high street itself is really needs um a, a rethink and that, that was one of the big platforms i stood on was um you know regenerating the high street but in a way that's led by the community because the idea my view is the hist you know the 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 kind of big developer-led regeneration of towns like Northampton will no longer fly and we see that across the country where um you know the, they're sold people are sold a dream by a group of architects who produce some amazing drawings where there's no cars on the streets and there's like one or two people walking along and they all look very happy and in reality um everything's a bit more grubbier and a bit more harder to deliver so yeah it, but it's a great town I've got to say it's got so much going for it um a lot of opportunity for job creation amazing green spaces both in the town and outside of the town and amazing connectivity you know it takes me 52 minutes to get to london on the train I and mean, that's just that's quicker than most people who commute from out of london to get into the set get into the city so it's a it is a great place to live and and it needs a champion and and that's hopefully what i can be so you're 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 the man well i mean speaking of that connectivity i um you know i think your your commute into london probably isn't too different to my own and i live right on the edge of the m25 so you know, it's uh, it, it speaks to it speaks to the location, but I think you you also, if you look at something like Northampton, I, I want I want to say it's what less than an hour to Birmingham, less than an hour to London. You think that if it's in the, you know, it's in that sort of golden triangle in terms of industrial logistics, all that kind of stuff. You you think that all of those, you you've got all the ingredients there to have a very vibrant, successful town, potentially city, if it, if it could even achieve that sort of status um what's i guess what's inspired you to get into politics um i know we obviously we've skirted over the mace side of things but um this is the this is let's be honest this is it's the exciting the exciting thing, stuff yeah, yeah. i'd um, say just on your point about northampton though i mean i guess you find this and that's one of the interesting things you can do all the maths of you know it's 57 minutes to birmingham it's about 55 minutes to london access to amazing parks green space edge of the countryside but actually you know if someone brought your development deal on paper it would look fantastic but the reality of going there is there's a lot more problems um than you know it just being an amazing commuter town and corby found that right remember when corby mm. became of course yeah and there, was, there was that run that was that um advert running for ages like new london mm. and now like you know within a few years the, tr the trains to corby have been downgraded to essentially an extension of the thames link like rattly trains so the big fast trains have gone no comfortable seats no one uses it the frequency is reduced and it just goes to show that just because the maths suggests it adds up as a development opportunity it doesn't add up um how did i get to politics so i've always so my wife actually got me into um the labor party i was never really that interested in politics um I always had a strong social purpose, which is why I, kind of, I went to a civil engineering as a as a career because I wanted to do something that you know had some had something that made made a difference, and I guess I could see made a difference. But when I left university, I just decided one day to go to a, a Labour Party meeting in Wellingborough, where I lived. Um, over well, I lived in Rushton, but Wellingborough constituency, and the Labour Party is really funny. Outside of London, and maybe some of the other big conurbations like Birmingham and Manchester and Leeds and Sheffield, you have all these Labour parties 
we call them constituency Labour parties, CLPs, which are just made up of like a couple of hundred people. And actually I turned up to this meeting, it was an old working men's club in a little village in the middle of nowhere. There's about six people there and I kind of walked in and thought, oh, bloody hell, what have I got myself into? Because <laughs> actually there isn't this big kind of, you imagine, you see like this big vibrant movement of people. In the majority of CLPs, they're quite leafy and quiet and it's just a group mm. of people who like each other and get on and have an interest in politics. So for years I was part of Wellingborough CLP. Um, Again, you know, we were competing against Peter Bone for, you know, firm Brexiteer, anti-LGBT, anti-anything modern, really. He's kind of the, um, the kind of, I don't know, cosplay version of Jacob Rees-Mogg, perhaps. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, he's not quite on the, on that same level, but uh, certainly his views. Um, and, you know, the county council in the area collapsed. Um, which meant the town council or the borough council, which was a big part of Wellingborough, kind of disappeared overnight. And yeah, I, you just kind of potted on. You knew you were never probably going to win, but you pushed on regardless and went out campaigning. And if we could get a couple of councils, then we knew we could make a bit of a difference, particularly in areas in Wellingborough and Rushton where there were was higher levels of deprivation. And it just so happened I changed jobs and joined Mace. And I was like no longer commuting to Leicester where I was commuting before to a company called Pick Everard. I was commuting to London and, and the trains got worse and worse from Wellingborough. And we decided, why don't we go try London? So I didn't really know London and I didn't really know London politics and ended up in Newham with, without really thinking about Labour. And, turn, you know, Newham is one of the safest Labour seats in the country, East and West Ham. Uh, 64 out of 66 councillors are Labour, the GLA member is Labour, the elected mayor is, is Labour, the two MPs are Labour um, and there's a lot of people who are formerly or currently heavily involved in the party I just kind of you get absorbed in and the more I was absorbed in the more excited I was about actually see, I could see what positive change Labour could make because I was in an area of Labour in power um, and then a couple of years ago, Labour launched a program called the Future Candidates Program. And the idea of that was to bring people from outside of the traditional routes into politics, which for Labour Party primarily is ex-councillors or leaders of councils, SPADs and political assistants um, and kind of union officers. They're kind of the three primary ways that people get into, into positions in the Labour Party and find hopefully find people from alternative views and, and areas to come into politics. And I was one of those people, so I applied. Um, from you know completely from a different background to most of the people on the program and you kind of get taught basically how to run how to build a team how to what collect elections really like some really hard truth about how absolutely uh, i won't swear uh how, how no, absolutely swear but swear absolutely, away please please swear. Absolutely, absolutely fucking difficult it is right i have no life now because every waking moment outside of a full-time job as a you know global level role in Mace of having to think about politics, what I say, who I am, what I'm doing, social media, meetings, meeting people, being on the doors, etc. So they're very honest about, you know, it's not for everyone. This isn't an easy ride. And if we're going to beat the the best election winning machine in the entire Western world, if not the world, in terms of demo in terms of demographic elections in the Conservative Party, the most winning capable election machine in the western world you have to realize how hard it's going to be so that was really good and i got some great networks and then after the pandemic we decided to move back to the midlands um we'd done rushton and wellingborough we wanted to still be close enough to kate's mum and family and ended up in northampton and then selections came around and i showed some interest spoke to some people got some backing and the rest was 
the rest is history, I suppose. You go through a very grueling selection process, um, a lot more grueling than the Conservatives and, and Lib Dems and I think the Greens. And we really put ourselves through the paces. Um, and and like and I won and off I go. So, can I, can I ask what? Uh, so the constituency you're standing for was Northampton South. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, what? Um, who is the current member of Parliament for that? And um, for what party? So he's a chap called Andrew Lua. He's a Conservative. Um, the previous MP um, stood down, um, and Andrew Andrew replaced him. Kind of as a bit of a bit of a, a floating. He. Um, actually lives and still lives in Derby. He was leader of Derby Council, he was an MEP. So he's a proper career politician, been a councillor for ages, then became an MEP. And then when Brexit became a thing, stopped being an MEP and became an MP. Um, my, my view, he has no real passion for the town. He's anti uh, net zero carbon. So his article in the Hampton Chronicle this month was saying 2050 is too close and we need to go slower. Um, and um, it's just not a great champion for the area. Um, it's funny, so he's got a political system, which I've not met yet, or chief of staff, sorry. Um, and a lot of people say you, when you meet them, you'd think the chief of staff was the MP and he was the chief of staff because there's no, the chief of staff chap, and I won't say his name just so people don't go look him up, is charismatic, interested, actually wants to know about stuff, I think lives in Northampton. And then he's just a bit dull and boring and probably just going through the motions to get the money to you know, get him on your podcast one day because he's a property developer as well in Derby. Um, he's his own property company. So you can look him up on Company's House and you can uh, tell me what you think his, his uh, companies are. I'll do good. that. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll definitely do that. Because, um, and, and what's his what's his majority? Like, it, it, just, how, under, it, just under just under 5,000. Um, okay. So we're the, we're the most winnable seat in Northamptonshire at the moment, and I'm 67 on Labour's target list. That will change in October when the boundaries change because some of the areas in Northampton go to Northampton North and I get essentially what is this, the new growth of Northampton down to the M1, which is a lot of housing that is going to be heavy labour, you know, young families, working families, ex-public sector workers, retired people that aren't on kind of mega pensions. Um, and we've done a lot of test polling and test canvassing in those areas and there's a really, really strong labour vote. So. Um, it just happens to be part of Andrea Ledsom's old constituency, which in the reverse of my experience in Newham is one of the safest Tory seats in the country. Yeah. So it's just never been knocked up. They've never it's mm. never really been worked at the level we need to look work it to win. And actually, one of the really interesting things of political science, which I think transfers into business development for what you and I do, is the power of personal contact. Mm -hmm. And um, the, there was a recent by-election in Chester. I parted loads of political research into it because the benefit of having a by-election, parliamentary by-election, is they can throw a load of resources at it, not only to win it, but also to measure and test and try out different things. And there is a direct correlation between name recognition of the candidate and the turnout for Labour. And they measured the more people had met the candidate in 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 the in the campaign, you know, had a direct impact on the likely turnout of Labour votes for Labour. So even though people are saying Labour, you've still got to get them to turn out and vote. And the more personal contact they had, the more likely they were to vote. And that's arguably how one of the big things, how Wes Streeting won Ilford in 2015 when you know Labour lost when Labour lost power, he came into power probably a term early because they just focused on name recognition and, and the candidate contacting people. So I'm very aware for the next 18 months, I just have to keep, you know, Knocking on those doors. Knocking on doors, canvassing, phone banking, being, you know, 
engaging with communities and and building the reputation because because like with business people people buy from people don't they you know you, you'll have a deal that comes through or a request for funding and even if it all stacks up if you don't really trust the person that's doing it you're going to walk away and i think that's the same with politics you could have all the rhetoric and policies and everything else but actually it, that final thing of people putting their cross down will quite often to come to do they trust the person they're putting their name against and i, and I hope people will see they can trust you know mike reader or reader mike as it'll be on the on the sheet well i think first of all i i think it's really i think i look i think it's really great that you're getting out there and canvassing and i completely connect with this notion that that name recognition i think if you've met the candidate you're or someone you know has met the candidate and obviously you, you have to have made a good impression on them but i'm sure mike you will as well i think as a consequence of that you are naturally far more likely to get a good turnout because people will feel more emotionally invested in uh in in you because of that so that makes that makes a lot of sense um my my impression mike just before coming on to to talk to you um is that i guess you know maybe five six years ago going for election in this particular um parliamentary seat probably was you know you're probably likely to be unsuccessful but in the current climate I think you've done really quite well to get this uh, to be nominated for this particular seat because I don't think that's a safe seat remotely for Tories I think this is very in, much in 20, very, 20, very much up for grabs very 2017 we were a thousand votes away from taking it yeah you know 20, 2019 we won't talk about 2019 but um in honesty it's a beltwether which which is a term they use for when you know it will go the way the national feel goes yeah um i kind of do agree that to say north and south are the same north and north and north and south so in 97 they both went to labor in 2010 they both switched back to tory um but you know the, the more we work the easier it will become to retain it when when it when it gets close yeah and you know one of your one of the notes that you sent me was what's what's your superpower i always like to think my superpower is winning the unwinnable because that's what we do off quite often at mace you know from that's how we, we've grown so quickly the past few years is we've just aggressively gone after stuff that we know we can be really really good at we can deliver value in not over promising not over committing and you know ultimately um doing doing the best we can for for the clients we work with and a great example of that is Curzon Street Station there was you know when we started bidding that there was everyone was there's no way they're going to give Mace two stations out of four on HS2 right you know and where we going for the motions but we decided no we're going to not leave any any anything unturned to win Curzon Street Station um and you know we won it and now Euston's been paused or slowed down and Curzon still cracks on. So, you know, whether it's Curzon Street Station or the Peru reconstruction programme, or we're looking at programmes in uh, Asia, um, uh, right through to North America, I guess tenacity and, and that drive to to win is going to help me along regardless. Well, I, I think, um, I, uh, you know, as, as you as you all have sent through, uh, if, you know, if, if you've learned anything from your hobbies or personal interests that you've been able to apply to your business life, I mean, you're, um, the, I can imagine you've had a lot of doors slammed shut in your face and when you've been out and about and for no reason other than personal preferences to the, the colour rosette that you're wearing. Presumably, presumably then 
it, it provides a helpful degree of context to your business life that whenever you get told you, you being told no in business probably feels a lot less scary as a, as a consequence of that uh, would I, you agree i imagine so so you know being in when you do bids particularly in kind of the consultancy space you are constantly judged on your losses and i was having a chat with, with jason my boss um the other day jason is our ceo about how you know are we really capturing the feedback on our wins and losses and we just are we just beating ourselves up and we lose and we're celebrating we win so i think there is a part of that but yeah i mean it, it does it, resilience has been a massive part of my career because you are openly judged in you know it feels like you're openly judged in the business at the highest level when you win and lose right and when we have a big loss and we have had some big big losses when we don't quite get there the whole business knows that something you led or the whole leadership knows something you led wasn't successful and it is it's hard so yeah resilience is good do you know what the color rosette has has sometimes been a thing 2019 was pretty horrendous the worst abuse i got was through brexit the Brexit referendum. You know, I was chased down the street by someone in a Boris Johnson mask telling me everything's going to be okay. I was spat out out of a car. Some people held, held abuse at me. And because I was, you know, campaigning to remain in Wellingborough, um, which, you know, I felt, I felt was the right thing for the country. Yeah, the, the worst abuse I had actually was over Brexit rather than anything political in, in terms of parties. So, yeah, if I can do, if I can deal with that, I can deal with, um, you know, uh, you, you, you go quite a thick stint and you grow kind of a bit of an artificial smile lovely to meet you when you meet people who you know every now and again do meet someone who tells me that immigration is out of control and we need to just put everyone on boats and send them off to Rwanda or you know every now and again you get a thing you know one of the big conservative attacks at the moment is trying to get able to talk about culture wars doesn't ever really come up you know probably once in about 200 doors it comes up if that and then you just smile and move on because i'm not gonna have a i'm not gonna win the debate with them either way on their views on whether trans women are women i have my view and they'll have theirs um but it actually isn't a big thing that comes up and so in the majority people are annoyed about gp surgeries and access to healthcare. that's like probably number one particularly in the more kind of suburban areas of northampton crime because unfortunately we had now three serious knife crime incidents in Northampton in the past few months, two of which unfortunately children have died um, as a result of being stabbed and just cost of living, like just frustration. And it's funny, people get more angry about the fact that their green bins went up from 48 to 54 pounds a month than they probably do about immigration and all that kind of stuff. So I think I think you have to have also have resilience against um, kind of media pressure. And a big thing that we talk about in the party is they call it a messaging grid, but for you and I, it's kind of your comms plan and just sticking to your own comms plan and not getting drawn into arguing against the other persons. And that arguably is what happened in the local elections, particularly is the Tories got called, got pulled off their comms plan because they want to talk about local issues. They want to talk about culture war. They want to talk about Keir Starmer and Labour just didn't engage in talking about that. We just kept talking about cost of living, cutting waiting lists, cutting crime. And the Conservatives came to talk and counter our arguments rather than talking about their own messaging. And that's a fascinating thing for kind of comms is just sticking with and that ruthless determination to stick with your own message rather than getting into a tit for tat argument on social media or on the doorstep or whatever else. I I have so many follow up questions, so I'm yeah. I, I, I'm going to go back to actually a note uh, a note I made earlier on, which is when you talked about the future leaders program. Um, was that something that was put in place as a reaction, you know, a reaction by the Labour Party leadership to 
essentially to Corbyn and to try and it, it was was that a, was that a factor? You know, you sort of trying to, you know, trying future to put can, future candidates and like the equivalents. A lot of the unions have like a candidates program. And I'm, you know, I was on the co-op party candidates program, the cooperative parties, Labour's sister party. And I'm a cooperative and Labour. I, I never, I never really understood how how they fit together, but maybe, maybe we'll that's just a, that, that's that, so that's for me I to go and Google. Maybe started in 2010, so it's actually run. It certainly was running under Ed Miliband, and it ran under Jeremy Corbyn, but perhaps perhaps with less of a fanfare, less accessibility. You know, it was a big thing. Members were encouraged. There was over four four and a half thousand people, I think, applied for it this time round. Whereas before, I'm sure it was a bit more. Done in the shadows. Who do you know? Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge, yes, on the it's a program. very, very moment, very momentum centric, perhaps. Uh, for, for Maybe, a period but, of time. Was, but I think it also. I'm sure it was taking place under Miliband, and I don't ever remember seeing it then. Mm. And there haven't been future cohorts since, and and that's an interesting thing. But it was just a. It, I guess it, perhaps the way that it was assessed, there was probably more people who were thinking about how do we select people to come onto this that can win elections because the only way we can make a difference to people's lives at scale is in power rather than who's our mates we want to put on it and and maybe that was how it's done before so but there's like there are union development programs the cooperative party as i said has a development program we have all sorts of stuff in the party like the joe cox foundation and labor women's network do development programs for staff there's a, a one for the bain community as well um jewish labor movement do kind of candidate training as well so actually there's a whole movement in the party to try and pull people out of just being activists into being leaders because we know we do better we've got people who, who believe in our values one of the things that you'll see particularly in local elections is some other parties will go and actively just recruit people who are good in the areas because they're known to win rather than necessarily having aligned values which is why, why now when you see the going gets tough particularly conservatives you see their you know i think peterborough their fourth um member has already defected corby down the road from me you know the ex-leader of the conservatives has, has has left the party because actually they're not tied in by that sense that moral connectivity of values they're just a group of people that want to have power and when they don't have power all of a sudden that falls apart very very quickly so i think that's the difference of the party i think one of the challenges that you i think one of the challenges conservatives have though is that they i think they completely lost their way um they you you, you have these sort of very varying factions within it and there, there doesn't seem to be any central theme that people are pulling behind. Um, I, I personally actually think Rishi Sunak's all right. Um, I mean, Jeremy Hunt's very boring, but, um, you know, relatively competent. But behind all of that is, you know, it is it is a bit of a shit show. And, um, you know, as, as someone who I, I'm not a member of any political party, I have tended to vote bluer than anything else but at the moment i'm finding myself incredibly politically homeless and um, i like you were wanted remain to win and i think that since the brexit vote it's been more difficult for me to um to be supportive of the conservatives um i think in 2019 i didn't vote conservative but i was content with the conservative win because i i think like most of the country um we were, you know, sort of appalled by the prospect of Jeremy Corbyn and, you know, his momentum acolytes coming in and taking over. Mm. So speaking of momentum, um, I know that there's been a lot of effort to try and um, sort of neutralise its its impact within the Labour Party. I think for someone like myself who 
I still am completely undecided as to how I'm going to vote. Where I live still is still quite inconsequential how I vote, but um, is increasingly where I've seen a neighbouring constituency in Windsor. Uh, the the Lib Dems have just taken the uh, have just taken the council. That uh, perhaps the, there is something in play here um, for the first time in however you know in a hundred years or whatever. Um, but for those of us that, that sit in the middle of the middle politically, or those of us who are politically homeless, um, what what comfort can you give to us where that you know the sort of the ghosts of Corbyn past have been erased, and that you know we don't have to you know that essentially it's not a Trojan horse with Keir Starmer who's kind of quite. You know, he, he you know, I, I, he's, he's quite. He's not a politician for no, a start, isn't he? No. You know, he's he's only been in Parliament since 2015, so he doesn't have that kind of. He doesn't always come across with that polish, or even though people say they don't like politicians, you know, people who are career politicians generally, you know, you can see they're. He doesn't always come across a politician. Uh, well, I, I was, so what I, I wanted I, to say, I, sorry, sorry, Mike. What well, I wanted to say was though that with Starmer, I sort of he's he's got a sort of Blairesque quality about him where I, I he's. I don't feel like he's he doesn't feel like an ardent hard hard wing left wing socialist type. He seems quite more sort of centrist, and so I derive comfort from that. But the worry is that the Trojan horse is that behind the the veneer is you know there could still be some quite hard left um, people trying to drive policy, and I suppose that's that's where those of us that sit in the middle, those undecideds of, of us, you know, the sort of middle Englanders, as it were. How how do you how do you give them comfort that that how, how can you give them comfort that you know that that actually behind the veneer is there is actually um, I think what what is amazing is is after 2019 all the talk in the party was is a two it's going to be a two election cycle you know we'd we'd lost the trust of the of the general public and and that is something that a part the political party can never do and that was soul destroying that friends who would always vote for Labour, would not vote for Labour because of our leadership. And and having lived directly, as you and I kind of tic-tacked on social media about it, having lived through some of it in when I was in East London, it was often people create, committing quite serious anti-Semitic, racist, homophobic actions, abusive actions, um, under the guise of being a Corbynite, but actually not having those values. So I think the the impact and the kind of strength of momentum and if you like Corbyn was was, was quite often overplayed in the media um, to you know make it harder for the Labour Party and 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 naturally London politics and and the Labour Party one of the challenges of the Labour Party is we're very vocal about our politics personal politics is that kind of played out publicly whereas the Conservatives are very good at holding rank and keeping all that privately you're seeing a bit more of the growth of it now so Andrew Lua my um, counterpart in Northampton South has just joined a group called the New Conservatives um, wonder where they got the idea of new something from, but um, we'll take that from but him and Lee, you know, 30p Lee and a load of other people who, you know, apparently family first, you know, one of them has been quoted saying that the only safe environment to bring up children is in a marriage between a man and a woman. Andrew's in the press saying 2015 is too close. We need to go longer. Fossil fuels still have a part to play in our in the future of energy in our country. So, um, you know, they're just they're just probably better at keeping quiet and and, the, and a point at which we saw that come to fruition where everyone all, all, all of a sudden became aware of the ERG you know these kind of quiet conservative kind of internal groups that exist that no one ever talks about the ERG became almost as 
uh, infamous as momentum in terms of momentum's impact on general elections and the ERG's European reform group's impact on Brexit policy. So um, trust is really important and it only comes through earning it. And so a big step for us is becoming the, the largest party in local government and to, to those areas like Plymouth, Swindon, Kent, Erewash and Bowles over where I live, where Labour now is in majority for the first time often in a long time to prove to voters that when we're in power, we do things better. And, and Wales is a prime example of that, you know, a Labour run country and generally Wales does better than UK in all the kind of big metrics that people look at, whether it's waiting time for GPs or investment in social infrastructure, investment in physical infrastructure. There are things that we can improve on in Wales, but generally um, Wales is always a great anchor for people to look at and um, and and to look at and how Labour runs. Um, and we hope, you know, Scotland will be the same and particularly under um, Scottish Labour's leadership and, and the collapse of the SNP and particularly I'd uh, be very interested to watch all the fraud claims and, and police investigations into the SNP and Nicola Sturgeon and all the rest of it that allegedly are being investigated. Um, I think trust is massively important, but it comes over time and, and you know, bringing it back again to, to your and I life outside of politics, trust is everything, right? And Wait, just, if you're trying I, to sell, if you're trying to sell, absolutely, yeah. If you and if you're just trying to build relationships, you're trying to if you if you've got a load of money tied up in a big development, or if I'm doing a big proposal for a project, if you don't trust your partner, it just becomes a lot more stressful and a lot more difficult. You know, if if we if I find if I get a feeling when I'm doing a big joint venture, and one of the interesting challenges as an aside is a lot of our joint ventures will will be partnered with the company in one market and in the other company in the other market will compete it's this fascinating thing of major programs because there's a limited pool of people um when when trust starts to ebb you have to deal with it very quickly because you know you know when the going gets tough and in the bid world when the going gets tough in the last few weeks when you're tweaking finessing making sure your messaging is absolutely on point you've got the right people and the cost is there if there's any doubt of trust in the team that starts to ebb and, and for politics is the same. We've just got to work and work and work now to build people's trust, set out policies and proposals and Kia's messages today on health and, you know, and focusing on community health rather than just building big hospitals and changing to be, you know, focusing on mental health and suicide much more because there you are know, these big killers in our, um, in our society. We've just got to keep working now for the next 18 months to convince people. And, that, and that's what we remember. We've got 18 months probably until the next election. So there's a long way to go yet. And the polls, as we've seen in the last few years, can can change very dramatically. As I keep having to remind everyone, just because it says Northampton South is 92% is likely to go Labour now, the polls could completely change in, in the next 18 months. So um, there's there's no no rest every weekend, you know, most nights. But they're not door knocking and on the phones. We're doing something to try and get a um, uh, return Labour victory in Northampton South. Yeah, as I say, a week is a long time in politics, and you know, you know like I mean, I don't. I, I'm pretty sure you probably don't want to go into it, go into it too much. But I think you know the point you made about the culture wars. I do think that is possibly you, you know, especially amongst that sort of um, the core of the country. Uh, you know, the, the sort of in the swing voting. Um, locations the you know the, the kind of what is a woman and female rights i mean you'll have to acknowledge that there is there is some risk that that um keir starmer and, and labor are taking in terms of the lack of clarity around you know the 
attitudes to women, in, in especially with in terms of the contrast that Rishi Sunak has 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 put forward. Now, whether that's right or not is, is you know is is a very subjective thing, a very personal matter. Um, but understandably, it is it is a bit of a hot button topic that people can 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 pin themselves to, and it's just these little things, I guess, that you that. Um, Keir Starmer has to be, and the wider, you know, senior people in the Labour Party will have to be mindful of um, over the coming weeks and months to make sure that, you know, on balance, they're they're, they're staying on the right side of things. Um, I, I actually want to talk. We we will talk about housing at, at some point, but what, what I wanted to actually speak to you about, um, because you brought it up, uh, you talked about hospitals and things like that, was the NHS. Um, I, I have a. I, I have a personal opinion that I think that the NHS is now, you know, it's kind of not fit for purpose in many ways. We, it is a, it is a, a bit of a financial black hole, and um, it, it, I mean that's what happens if you create a, something, you create a system like the NHS, which has essentially unlimited demand. I think there's essentially you could give it infinite resource, and the, the demand will always out outstrip the resource that you give it. Um, have you do you have any personal private opinions in terms of in terms of how the NHS might be reformed because I I don't think the NHS could ever be reformed under the conservatives because there'd just be too much resistance to that um there are my, some big there are some big areas where you, have, you know you have to remember the NHS was designed and formed in post-war Britain we're talking 70 80 years ago in the kind of formation mm. of it and uh, the the pace of change in the way that we think about models of care probably hasn't kept up, and and you know one of the things that is amazingly challenging to grapple with is just the pace of change in the UK now, um, digitalization, um, just people's habits and preferences, more people at home. We're chatting the other day before the pandemic, it would have been frowned upon to have a doctor's appointment in the middle of the day and to mm. work from home that day, you know, and and now that's completely normal. So even these kind of demographic or kind of, I don't know if that's demographic is the right word. This is why I, I show myself up as being a bit of a Luddite. Um, those those changes in people's habits, has the NHS kept up with that? Possibly no. And our, our view as the Labour Party, as was announced by Kia today, and I'm yet to watch the speech, so um, but I've, I've had the kind of briefing note on it, is that care has to be more focused on the community. That That disconnect between health and social care actually when you come down to it and and also the preventative care you know the root causes of a lot of the things that cost the NHS a lot of money um, and without giving you know societal benefit at the way we would hope can be addressed by addressing things outside the NHS you know homelessness access to proper decent food uh, medicine and uh, coping mechanisms for people with mental health. You know, the mental health waiting list is 15,000 people in Northamptonshire or in, North, in the Northampton area who are waiting for an appointment with a mental health professional. There are, every year there's over 2,000 people who will never even get there and will just drop off. You know, and that's that's one of the most scary things. And you and I know from working in the construction industry, and, and I, I've, I've unfortunately had um, to deal firsthand with, with suicide and, and mental health issues within within my teams um it's a big it's a big big issue in our industry still mental health you saw some of the reports of major programs like hinkley where you know the the, the rate of of mental health and, and illness on those sites where people are isolated and 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 the like is just it's just phenomenal so for me it's 
rethinking healthcare to move away from um, you know building 42 hospitals of which none of which so far have been new hospitals can I point out Mr Boris Johnson some of them been like a ward refurbishment or you know a bit, a bit of paint somewhere and they could call it a new hospital um, we have to be careful because you know we, we do do some work on new hospitals program but those existing hospitals it's in the public domain they aren't new hospitals mm. um, but for me it's moving care into the community it's relinking up and I, I think removing profit from social care um, because it's it we want people to grow old with dignity and I think um, the level of care that people get in their older age is not acceptable and if we can improve that we keep people out of hospital we keep them in their homes we give them the proper support they need we get better quality of service for our elderly people and ultimately that starts to free up the capacity of the NHS so for me you know it, it came up actually a lot during selections because there's a lot being a hospital town there's a lot of my members who are both nurses and doctors and kind of health professionals but that linkage of health and social care and how we address that you know here people get stuck between hospital and going in, into local authority controlled social care and preventative care dealing with some of the root causes like air pollution in places like Northampton which will no, no longer you know will have an impact on asthma which will mean more kids going to see the doctor because of asthma point, which means more risk of them going to A&E which means more risk of them going into hospital because of mm. um, respiratory problems and long-term impacts um, that has to be the focus I think I, I, I actually don't think the NHS is as broken as it is I just think it has a capacity problem because we're not dealing with the things that that, that put so much pressure on it but is there is there is it maybe time within the Labour Party to uh, and more generally within the country to look at other systems and I'm not talking about the US system but it, other systems such as the Australian system, such as the German system, and potentially looking at those models and seeing, is there anything about those models that we could adopt? Because it feels like this sort of um, free at the point of care um, model that we have within the NHS, it's potentially not working. And it's a bit of a sacred, it feels like a bit of a sacred cow and but with both within both within the Labour and the Tory parties but actually it does feel to me like the, if anyone was able to get through a reform of that nature it would probably be Labour just because I think that you know the natural you know the NHS naturally leans politically more towards Labour in 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 the first place yeah I think I think one of the benefits of being in opposition is that you have a lot of time to really think and study and I'm sure I saw Wes a week and a half ago and we had a chat last Friday you know when the train strikes were on I, I by the way I wouldn't recommend it I decided to get a bus back for London because I had to be in London <laughs> on the Thursday of the night and um, queuing for the bus on Finchley Road um, amongst a million other people trying to get to Gatwick Airport was was certainly an interesting experience <laughs> um, uh, and but we were chatting on the phone because we were just talking about something and, and yeah one of the benefits of being in opposition is that we have a chance to really understand how you know, things like healthcare are done around the world and actually have some thinking time around how do we make it better and that's one of the big benefits of change in the UK when you see these big changes from you know conservative to to to, to labor is that we can come in with fresh reforms that have been really well tested with you know, in this case with patients, with nurses groups, doctors groups, um, 
across the world looking at how things work and, and I am certain that a you know the, the proposals that have come out in the speech today and will continue to come out in the next 18 months as we move towards election will adopt the best of the best because that's what we that's what we you know owe ourselves in the UK we've got the skill we've got the capability in the UK to deliver that we just need fresh vision and you're right looking at those different models nothing should be off the table we just need to make sure we understand the implications of everything and that that takes time and research and understanding listening and humility and always thinking about putting patience at the heart of all the decisions that we make i guess in between your day job i'm just going to change tack here slightly i suppose in between your day job and your 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 weekend activities i mean that's that's got that's pretty full-on right you're, you're working probably 40, 50, 40 to 50 hours a week within MACE, high pressure, high stress job. And then the spare moments that you've got, you're going around, I suppose, Northamptonshire, but then in other locations where you've you've got to help fellow party members or fe fellow candidates uh, with door knocking and canvassing, etc. Um, you're pretty busy right now. How are you, how are you able to maintain a degree of sanity you know what 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 do you, do you have some positive habits that are kind of supporting your lifestyle and well-being right now because yeah you, you've, you've got you've got so much going on um so a big part of going into this and and there was a whole thing in the future candidates program about this but being very well you know and and, and i'll be open with you michael I had, a, I had a bit of a breakdown a couple of years ago and I had to take some time off work with mental health problems um you know quite serious but i went through you know the, the typical thing you do a mixture of of drugs and counseling and and kind of got back on a a level pegging um in terms of my kind of mental and that was primarily down to stress and pressures that i put on myself from um you know work and 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 things so I've, I've kind of been very aware of it and i have quite a hefty well-being routine i suppose you'd call it so um can you talk, just, can, you, can you talk us through it because i I've think tried, that's one of the things people are, are quite to, interested in to follow what people recommend so I try and do a bit of meditation every morning so there's an app called a, a podcast called the daily meditation podcast it's five minutes sometimes it's good sometimes it's not but I just listen to her talk five minutes and or ten minutes about ten twelve minutes and center myself um, I go to the gym twice a week so I decided to get control of my health because a lot of the research says you know diet and and physical condition has an impact on mental health so i'm eating trying to eat really healthily and trying to eat the rainbow every day don't go into the gym twice a week go for swim sauna that kind of stuff um there's a really cheap gym thankfully in town that has all those amenities when it was a posh gym and it got sold off um i've taken up a lot more walking just you know i get off the tube station one step before just to get some air between train and work or work and train just to have a bit of uh uh, a break. I do therapy most weeks. Uh, I have a counsellor in um, in in London, which is quite useful because there's a good separation between home and counselling. And we just sit down and talk for a week, an hour about what's happened in the week, problems, challenges. Um, and so there's kind of building blocks of uh, meditation, gym, looking after myself. Oh, I go for a, a Thai massage most weeks. Mm -hmm. So I mean, uh, there's a little shop in Wellingborough and they've got a couple's massage room. So me and Kate go um, and they all laugh at me because I'm really ticklish and not very flexible as they, these tiny Thai women beat the crap out of me and Kate finds it hilarious. Um, <laughs> you know, but actually it's really good because it kind of gets all the, as my therapist, I get all the cortisol, whatever it's called, out of your body, feel more relaxed. Um, and the final thing is sleep. 
so I made a rule that I will always try and have a minimum of eight hours sleep because I know eight hours is what I need. I wish I was one of those people that live on five or six, but after two or three days of doing that, I'm kind of exhausted. So to keep up the energy that I need during the day, I really prioritize sleep. And, and if that means I have to cancel early meetings, then uh, then so be it. And, and if I'm really struggling, the final kind of thing is to watch a really trashy movie uh, normally like an action movie where Jason Statham or Gerard Butler are doing an American accent and you know there's some sort of microchip that if they don't get that microchip out the world is going to explode but I do you know a bit of kind of remo remove from reality which is why I'm very excited that the new Fast and the Furious film has come out because after I watch those things I come out of the cinema thinking that is a two hours of my life I'm never going to get back and that was probably the worst film I've ever seen but I'll still go back again to watch it just to watch how stupid and ridiculous it is so um yeah the, the, a real mixture of things is is the honest answer yeah I watched uh so, someone did a twitter thread of um you know increasingly you know increasingly ridiculous um unre uh, <laughs> unrealistic uh events that take place in uh, fast and furious movies i think when it really jumped the shark when i think vin diesel catches it or, or what's it dom toretto he catches a car uh, or something yeah. like that <laughs> i watch there's a there's a great youtube channel called mr sunday movies an american uh, australian chap and he does some of them with his friend uh, and it's all about comics and stuff but they do movie reviews and every now and again they do a stint to movies and they've just done for the release of fast they've done a kind of commentary and review of fast and furious 4 to Fast and Furious 7, which is the period when it went from like race wars and we've got to solve a crime to uh, Vin Diesel catching Letty in midair using a car as a as a crash mat and then just walk straight off or like, yeah, that kind of, you know, stupid, crazy stuff. Like at a point they had him, the one where they're in Dubai and he lifts the car up so they can get a chip underneath. Like we looked at this, this car weighs, weighs like three and a half tons. And he's just there <laughs> lifting the car up and they're like joking around like underneath the car doing stuff. And it's like, yeah, this is a bit silly, isn't it? Yeah. When they went from, you know, racing the desert to stealing a tank or the last one was the last one. There was a submarine that could smash through ice and stuff. And um, yeah, but, you, you know, you, you know, I know already when I watch that film, essentially those stupid set pieces they've made up and there's some sort of storyline which roughly ties it together but in essentially it's just you know crazy so that kind of film and more of a kind of straight to netflix um gerard butler classic as well is always good for me so yeah it just depends on what's happened no uh, no I, I, I love that um who you know obviously being being a, i suppose in, in being politically minded, maybe there's a there's some bias here, but you know, which which people or past events inspire you and give you the motivation to succeed? Um, it's a good question actually, because I I wouldn't necessarily say there's single people, or I'm probably more motivated by past events in my life to want to improve and want to do better. You know, I, I came from pretty average family, um, you know, I guess lower middle class in Hampshire two working parents, mum's teacher, dad was university uh, uh, worker, um, two brothers. We kind of had, you know, a very kind of normal life and and nothing kind of particularly exciting. I think now I'm in the Midlands, but people think I'm kind of some sort of uh, silver-tongued royalty with my southern accent. But actually, um, in honesty, it's just, it, it's just coming from not having a lot, 
in relative terms i know that is not true for some but in relative terms to people that around me not having a lot uh living in hampshire and just being driven to um almost driven to beat myself i guess you know i, I was always competitive i used to swim professionally for a long time um never quite made it to nationals but made it to to regionals in terms of levels um and that natural competitive kind of nature maybe growing up with two brothers has just transferred into it there's great people that i kind of look to for help in different areas there's people politically that i look to privately for help and mentoring and support and there's people in bids and proposals that i look to for mentoring and support and there's people i guess outside of all of that that i lean on for help but i i actually wouldn't say there's particularly people that um necessarily inspire me i think it's more my own personal experiences and wanting to do better for myself and my family and my community but also then i don't know i, I find weird and wonderful things so one of my favorite books is um a book of how we won the london 2012 olympics and i just love that book because it tells the full warts and all story of the bid process the only bid book i've ever read that isn't like a textbook but that kind of thing inspires me. You know, I've always said one day I'd love to lead an Olympic bid because I just think it's fascinating to try and, and especially in the modern world now, now that we're in the world of global politics in sports, um, to lead a kind of proposal like that. So you just kind of get these weird and wonderful uh, things that inspire you, but certainly just growing up and wanting to do better um, and then just, you know, continuing to want to try and beat myself in terms of what I do and how I achieve it's what kind of drives me but that also is really important like you know to come back to your question of well-being that's something I work through a lot in therapy because my therapist is always very much like you need to realize how much you have achieved at your age and what you're doing but for me I'm always like yeah but I could I could do more and that's fine for me that's more finding the balance is um, realizing that I can only do so much and and maybe I won't be the next the grand game-changing world leader but i can certainly make a difference in my um my sphere of influence i mean assuming you're, you're successful um when it comes to the election is there are there you know if you've got your eye on being involved in any particular government departments um obviously you you're i know you're, you'll probably be promoting you know prioritizing your constituents first and foremost and, and trying to drive the regeneration of northampton and and, and all the rest of it but are there in particular government departments that you really like to get involved in um i guess yes and no one of the one of the things i've had to um get to terms with it's actually very difficult to individually make change as an mp and we had some mps come talk to us on the future candidates program about you know you can be kind of almost a single issue mp that goes to change something and there's great examples the labor party like stella creasy on kind of women's rights and parents rights or jess phillips um and and those people who've had long terms in parliament and can slowly make that change through private members bills and all the process and procedures actually whenever you read any kind of book about what it's like to be a politician you realize that people go in with massive hope of changing stuff and realize that the way politics works in the uk means it's almost impossible to change things if it's not on the manifesto of the party in charge and even then it's incredibly difficult to make change so for me actually i want to bring the skills and the practical skills i've got from procurement and work winning into how government buys and and engage with private sector because i think there's some great stuff we do um i was really fortunate to be involved in projects prior to the social value act that we're delivering kind of the, the forerunner to social value and, and now that's in law 
you know, a phenomenal thing that has transformed the construction industry, certainly in terms of the benefit that we deliver back into communities. And I think that can be mirrored elsewhere. So I think I think for me, rather than a particular department, it's around helping government be a better partner for um, business because we have to rely on business for any of my colleagues in the Labour Party who are like we could, you know, talking about work of business is a bad thing. Well, no, the reality is the government can't function without the billions, if not trillions of pounds it has to spend with private businesses every year. So we have to make sure we're getting value for money for from every single penny we spend with that. And I don't, and I don't believe the government does at the moment. I, you know, And a prime example of that, of course, is the pandemic PPE fast track from you know, Michelle Monroe's, Monroe's um, £25 million worth of PPE that got thrown away to the £3.2 billion of PPE that was just written off that they bought badly through the pandemic. You know, almost when you think about it, almost sickening numbers that were just wasted. And then we kind of pick on, you know, people on welfare or people struggling or people who've joined, who've come to the country as as migrants. And you just think actually the amount of money in it's almost it's because billion almost is unimaginable, isn't it? But three point two billion pounds was written off because they bought it wrong, or it wasn't needed, or it was out of date, or it wasn't to spec. It's just oh, just phenomenal waste. Or test and test and trace uh, test, test and trace, trace programs which don't which don't work. I mean, uh, you don't. I mean, you don't want to get me started on the pandemic because it's just yeah, it's a uh, uh, it's a bit of a bet noir. A bet noir. It's a prime way. example of actually rather than being policy specific. And of course, I'd love to do something on the built environment. Of course, I'd love to champion and build the Northern Powerhouse Rail. I think that's a, 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 a crying shame that the government stalled that, um, you know, a, a transformational programme for the North of England in Northern Powerhouse Rail. Um, but actually, for me, it's it's hopefully helping political colleagues to work better with civil servants to deliver better value for the public because actually if I can do that everyone benefits because tax people who pay their taxes benefit and people on benefits who maybe don't pay their taxes benefit because everyone gets better value for money from the money the government spends so uh, it's really unsexy I mean mm. you know naturally I'm a big environmentalist so uh if ever labor or you know if ever labor ever steers away from strong environmental roots and addressing net zero carbon uh, addressing the water crisis that will no doubt follow and biodiversity crises that are coming in our country over the coming years and in the world, you know, the inequality of, of climate change in the third world, particularly. Um, if we ever stray away from slightly that, I'll be very vocal and working very hard within the PLP, Parliamentary Labour Party, to keep us on track. But in reality, I hope actually I can be an enabler for government to be better and spend our money better because, of the you know, the amount of money that it spends is eye-watering. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, government budgets are enormous, and um, you know, the, you, there's always going to be a degree of there's always going to be a degree of waste. And of course, what we sometimes forget is that that is actually our money. So if you're able to, uh, if you're able to, in some way, to um, reduce that waste, then uh, we will all be thanking you for it. Um, let, let's just move on to let's move on to the subject of housing, if we can. Um, Michael Gove recently caught my eye with the changes that that he put forward, um, essentially, which were the consequence of I think about forty backbenchers leading a bit of a revolt, um, essentially watering down housing targets and removing the requirement for, for councils to have a five-year housing land supply. Um, it, it's very clear to me that the 
the government is anti the current Tory government is anti house building and they they seem to be they like the idea of home ownership which is why they're looking to reintroduce help to buy but what they don't realize is that the fastest routes to home home ownership is actually building enough homes for people to buy i know there were some announcements last week made by the party around the, what they were going to do with housing do you want to talk to some of those because i think that's that's something that you know people like myself who are in the real estate industry that do care about the undersupply of housing will sit up and take note and you know maybe more inclined to lend us lend you our votes yeah i mean housing is a, fa- a fascinating issue for someone like northampton we've got on the outskirts as you go kind of out, out of town towards the m1 and, and out of town towards the west and even in northampton north and the other constituency and actually which is where i live um in northampton north um houses you know rocketing up in whole new estates um but i don't like the term nimbyism because actually it's not and the majority is not nimbyism what what is frustrating for people is that they see houses going up and the services and infrastructure doesn't go up at pace with them and i think if there's one thing labor can do to address that and to help people in place on hampton it's re-establishing how sill and those other kind of benefits that you get from major development come out earlier into the into the communities that are already impacted you know there's an area in northampton called dustin building thousands and thousands of new homes dustin already has the most oversubscribed gp surgery in the whole northampton and there's not a new gp surgery planned for years in the development that's coming so there's gonna be a whole you know thousands more people and thousands more households being built so actually a lot of time people aren't against housing they're in, they're, they're against the impact of housing with you know and without having the proper investment in infrastructure and and the services that they would expect as a resident that might have lived in the area for 20 30 years of their life so i think labor's proposals to readdress how we do th- deal with things like land banking and how we deal with um you know encouraging developers to bring forward the social infrastructure and physical infrastructure needed to support communities earlier uh is is absolutely absolutely vital i think like you i agree i think help to buy on paper and in terms of politics always sounds like a great idea but actually it just pushes prices up and doesn't really help people trying to get on the ladder um and i i think um that you know some of the stuff that's still being talked around about renter reform and that kind of stuff i think i think there's some interesting stuff there but i think for me in northampton particularly it's around how do we deal with major development and and I'd like also to look at how and with, I know it's not in the policy yet, how we deal with brownfield development and VAT and all those kind of things because it never quite makes sense to me and I'm sure someone will will be able to educate me on this but why um, you know redevelopment regeneration projects sorry redevelopment projects renovation projects are, are rated differently to new builds but um, it, it never quite makes sense if, if we want to encourage people to be more sustainable reuse buildings you know circular economy all those good buzzwords why aren't we incentivizing that in our planning and in our taxation system i don't really know uh yeah i mean there's some there's a few things i want to just touch on with you first of all talk me through the the proposals around land banking because as someone that has a has a business that invests in the planning system um i'm i'm very curious about this especially given the time and cost involved in in trying to get a site through planning so what what are you proposing or what would labor party be proposing around around land banking i i think there is i think i think land banking and a great example is when i lived in newham um 
And if you ever go out to City Airport, you'll see a big load of wasteland next to City Airport called Silvertown. And it was a mm. development, I think Lendlease was a developer for a while. And there was a developer, a Chinese developer, ABP, before that. And that has just sat on someone's books for years. There's been no intention to regenerate it. It could be the site for thousands of much needed homes in East London. And there was no incentive for anyone to build there. And it's one of the sites, it's one of those sites that goes through countless new master plan, new master plan, new master plan, and nothing ever really happens. So I think there has to be a drive to encourage um, developers where a site is viably buildable that they have to build. Because I think I think you're right, you know, I, I don't like the idea of speculating on land through the planning process, but uh, it is part of the planning system and, and perhaps planning reforms will change that. But the idea of someone getting something through planning, sitting on it and not doing it, um, particularly when it's a brownfield site and it could make such a difference to an area in terms of not only housing, but, you know, crime, antisocial behaviour, the environment, the the look and feel of how people feel when they're walking down the street or they're walking past hoardings and, you know, rubble or are they, looking, are they walking past feeling like they're being invested in, I think is really important. And we've got that challenge in Northampton as well. There was a big regeneration program to build out the university and Waterside campus was delivered. But every morning um, when you go to the station, you just drive past loads of hoarding because it's just massively stalled developments that aren't going anywhere. And it's cheaper for the developer to hold on to the land and to release it and let someone else actually build the housing. So there isn't a one size fits all on land banking. I completely accept that. And I think there are reasons why it's beneficial for organisations to benefit through, um, uh, to benefit to uh, bring betterment to the land and improve it and release that out. Um, but I think those who sit on developable land for years, if not decades, not do anything with it, are doing more social impact to the communities they are kind of holding that land in than the, the kind of financial benefit they're getting. You see, this is where I have some difficulty with the concept of these these I suspect that these sound bites that tend to come from politicians around land banking. Unfortunately for you, they tend to come more from the left than from the right. Um, and I mean, if you've got to appreciate the time, cost and effort that goes into trying to secure a, a planning consent, particularly, you know, you mentioned the Silvertown development. Um, that That is a, you know, potentially decades long uh, master planning exercise that's going to cost in just in planning fees and costs uh, is going to come run into the high hundreds of thousands or even millions of pounds. Uh, not to mention the cost of the land itself. It, it always strikes me that if a developer, if it was viable for a developer to build something out, the developer is going to build it out, assuming that they're a private developer. And the reasons why that scheme is not being built out are, you know, probably myriad, but most likely the main reason for a development not to be built out is because it it is not viable for that scheme to be built at that moment in time and let's just say for example you get you got planning consent in you know mid to late 2008 and then you've got Lehman Brothers kicking in and so the site that you've just got your planning consent for of course the world is completely you know the, the economic realities of that world are completely different and so th that becomes difficult and I think the reason why I think it's dangerous to start to go down this this road on land with the, with regards to land banking is that 
you're likely to see less investment in in planning applications in the housing sector in my opinion if there's if there's a risk that when you do get your consent and we can i can bore you silly with painful stories about how bad the local planning system is albeit these are in kind of leafy surrey and hampshire and berkshire locations um you know the, the planning system is is not fit for purpose at the moment and if you've had to spend years trying to get I mean, it took us nearly three years to get a nine unit very run-of-the-mill planning application through in Surrey Heath Michael Gove's constituency wouldn't you know um so maybe there are no coincidences <laughs> um the the you know the the thing here is that um you know it, it's it, you imagine that for a nine unit scheme and if you're talking about these major you know strategic sites you know if you're a major house builder like you know T taylor Wimpy barrett fill in the blank you know they're probably going to be less likely less inclined to invest in the planning in in planning journeys in the planning system if they are then put, put in a I position i don't know if they would the amount of profit you know persimmon and others make at that top level is is eye-watering and and i think tightening of land banking rules is not going to disincentivize them from from building i think for you know a, a business like yours you know a, a focus on why on earth it would take three years to develop a nine unit site has to has to focus on planning because you know for the social benefit of building nine homes i can't believe the the cost and the pain of that three-year process was worth whatever minutia of change was achieved on the design or the proposal or whatever it was or dealing with residents concerns or grid connections whatever else was the issues um i can't believe that that's that's um fundamentally um uh, right you know you should that at that level of development the planning system should be efficient enough that if it's much needed homes and you know the appropriate assessments have been done on accessibility uh, um impact etc that, that that you should be you should be able to crack on and build because ultimately what what labor would want is more homes in the system to you know give people uh, the option of of owning their own home so i think i don't think i think you're right sound bites are really difficult um because there's no one size fits all an answer to a silver town or a um what's the next development up where the council offices were that they never built the council offices and then all the rest are completely empty it's quite fun to walk the dog around because there are these if anyone who doesn't know if you fly out of city airport there are these massive office buildings that were built by abp and a chinese developer that have never been opened and it's just kind of this weird almost like film set of empty offices which could i guess could be turned into housing just never got off the ground um at that scale sitting on that development hoping the market's going to change the developer can make their money i think i think for the public good there has to be a way that that land is recouped and turned into public use and and i don't believe on the scale at which let's say an abp operates that's going to put them off investing in the market or a persimmon or a taylor wimpy at the scale at which they they invest in the market i don't believe that would put them off becoming a, a housing developer um at, at the scale that we talk about with a nine nine bed a nine dwelling de development there has to be a better way of doing it because that is that's almost sickening isn't it that there would be a desperate need for those homes it'd be high quality homes because we know as a private you know sme builder that you'll probably have on that scheme or a small scale builder the quality is going to be better there's better customer care there's better support for the people moving in than you perhaps would get on a 
and and my sister my sister-in-law loves her a new build house she's finally stopped moving house to house to house but every single time the amount of nightmares she's had with and it is my favorite TikTok, by the way, which I don't, I'm not on TikTok. I'm going off on a tangent here. Have you seen the guy that goes around and does the um, uh, snagging videos? There's like one, he's a Welsh guy. No, I haven't. I need to send it to you. And he, and he goes around all like the Persimmons and the Taylor Wimpies and the, and the Red Rose, et cetera. And the quality of the build on some of them. Like he'll go to the oven and just pull the whole oven out. It's not being connected. Or like the bath hasn't got a drain in it. Or like he puts his um, spirit level against the, the side wall and the wall is like 15, 20 mil out of plumb. Or or like echo drains that aren't connected to anything. They're just there visually because it was on the plan. Horrendous, right? So I, I, have, I have a very strong view that we need to do as much as we can to help small biz builders to build because... They deliver better homes and they deliver better quality homes. And actually, why would you not want to support small builders and, and smaller developers than have everything run by these kind of massive corporations that um, I, I would I would say from personal experience, do not put necessarily put the customer actually at the forefront when they're buying the home because they're already focused on selling the next phase and the next slot plot of land, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I think that's the one thing that I think that's one of the key distinctions that certainly does need to be made is that at the moment it's my impression that local planning departments are either and and certainly i know i hear this anecdotally is that local planning departments are spending their time either dealing with domestic extensions which should really be just dealt with under permitted development and just a a rubber stamp or they're they're spending their time looking at you know the larger strategic sites of one two three hundred units and above and it's those, you know, those sort of those smaller developments, uh, those sort of windfall development schemes that seem to be falling through the cracks. And the general consensus is that I suppose outside of maybe the larger, uh, you know, London, uh, London boroughs, you know, moving into outside the M25, it's almost like if you want your uh, application to be looked at, you need to go, at, you need to effectively go to appeal. So the council, the council will just not determine the not determine your application, and it'll just leave it and leave it and leave it and leave it. And then the only way you can actually have it looked at is if you force the council to go to the planning inspectorate. So you appeal. But that's for, not right, is it? That's not right for public. Well, it's shocking. The public it's shocking. Or for the developer. But but this is but but I think there's another there's another issue there that probably needs to be looked at, which is and you know maybe this is something that will resonate with you as well. There are some issues at the moment around. Um, around motivation and productivity within the public sector. I think particularly public sector workers who, and I think this is a an issue that's particularly come up as a result post-pandemic, where public sector workers, the ones who are office-based, a lot of them now are working from home. And let's just say the levels of motivation and productivity are extremely varied. And if they're not in the office being monitored and watched over by superiors, you know, kind of, you know, cats away, mice will play type, type deal. And you know, that's that... really true. That I mean, do you see that from your staff? If you don't have them in your office, and I've not been to your new office, do you believe they're working less hard when they're at home? Um, I I can't necessarily speak to that, but I think that <laughs> I, I I tell look, I'll tell you the difference is that I have I think the Avonmore team, and because the Avonmore team, the average age is I think under thirty, it's like late twenties. 
as a young team, they want to be in the office. They realize and understand the benefits of sharing information, you know, bouncing information off each other and also having the managers there from whom who can overhear their conversations and give them real time feedback and give them training and development. Plus the fact that then they're all naturally quite gregarious and social. I think that they're the return to office for them was not a difficult wasn't difficult at all um whereas i think that i'm not i'm you know look i'm i'm speaking from you know second hand third hand uh bits of feedback that i get from people who work within the planning system uh albeit on the consultancy side and these are the I'll, things I'll give, these I'll are give, some of the things a, that they um, say i'll give you a, a lifeline here for you uh you know your staff come back because i completely agree with what you're saying i am one of the biggest challenges i've had is getting used to you know having someone who's grown up and working in office five days a week and and seen the benefits when i was a graduate particularly of sitting next to a you know a senior engineer who i could ask 10 hundred questions a day and continue develop and learn managing a team who are anti coming to the office and switching my mindset from task-based to outcome-based and being much better at giving feedback and instructions knowing they're going to ask less questions and that's a real challenge for me I, I i i don't know but anecdotally you know we had george osborne and austerity we've had you know millions and millions of, of pounds cut from public bodies um we've got a shortage you know to come back to the planning point a shortage of planners as we know, and you know, particularly there's a capacity issue in in the grid in terms of dealing with network connections. The, I'm sure there's a similar capacity issue in water companies dealing with network connections. There's a whole host of things actually that are just slowing down the process. I wouldn't say public sector workers working from home is one of them. I think there's an interesting question though, as you know, Mace has done a massive investment to help managers to manage people remotely, and we, you know, there's been an amazing amount of investment from the board and really forward thinking investment in helping people to understand how to manage remotely particularly as actually you know my team before the pandemic you had to work in london because that's where office was all of a sudden i'm recruiting people in the welsh valleys deepest darkest cambridge i've got people in you know many more people in manchester sheffield i had someone in brighton i've got people in india who now work for me dubai new york etc the ability to manage cross time zones and manage remotely when you can't physically see someone is a real skill and and as a as a theory or a kind of a, a theory to the challenge of what, what you're saying i think actually a cash strapped local authority that's got a million demands on it in a in particularly going through covid as well probably hasn't had the opportunity to invest in supporting its staff in managing remotely as as private sector has and i think that's that's probably a crying shame and and i think probably drives some of the view that you know they're, they're kind of out of sight am i not working i would i would say my personal experiences and i think yours what you're saying is as well is actually people aren't working less hard but they but we have we as leaders have to work differently in how we lead those teams because it can't be as on the fly on the hoof in the office learning by experience it's got to be more structured um, and as I've got, I've got three more graduates joining me in September, I'm really, I'm feeling, I'm feeling, I always felt quite young in the office, but I'm feeling really old now. <laughs> but I've got people coming in and they're, they are over 20 years younger than me now. That's quite scary for what, me. What age are you now, Mike? I'm 39. So I've got an apprentice yeah. coming in who will be 18. 
Yeah. You, you look good. You look good for it. You're still quite quite fresh faced. I've turned the filter on. You've turned I the mean, filter you, on. You, yeah. you too. You too, Michael. You know, we're, we're too fresh. <laughs> uh, I and, well, I, it was a. I've, I've recently shaved. I'm norm, I'm normally carrying a bit of a beard these days, but uh, that's the benefits of post pandemic. Uh, um, just, just, I mean, I, I mean, actually, I'm curious about that. How do you? I mean, how do you find dealing with those younger members of staff? Because I, I mean, speaking from my own experience. I'm, you know, now I'm 41, and although I don't feel that old, actually, I, you know, when I'm faced with a sort of 23, 24, 25 year old, I'm not really sure what to talk to them about. You know, like I, far, I feel you, kind. Do you of, feel like Joey um, in that episode of Friends? Yo, yeah. What's up with the whack PlayStation <laughs> Yo? Yeah. Um. And again, they won't get that reference. Uh. Yeah. And it's difficult, actually. Um. It's difficult feeling old. When you, you know, and actually one of the interesting things when I came from Pick Everard to Mace, Pick Everard in reality was quite an old business. All of the leaders were in their 60s already. A lot of the partners were at retiring or just retiring. And as a general rule, they kind of retired around 60. Um, and they came to Mace and most of the leadership were kind of in their late 30s when I joined in my kind of early 30s. And my peers are all kind of, you know, early 40s, mid 40s in the kind of our leadership. So it's quite a young leadership team. Um and so that's that was quite an interesting experience. But again, managing young, really kind of young new graduates, I, I, what I'm finding, and maybe uh, I need to reflect on this more, is I'm having to be more direct because they are not in the office for that kind of like peer to peer support. So being a lot clearer on outcomes, what's what's expected, you know, how, where I want them to come back and talk to me about things, which sounds obvious, but when you're in the office, you'll just chat how you're getting on, can I help you? Yeah. If I don't see someone for a week, I've got to set right, you know, when you get to this point, come back and let's talk before you go much further because it needs more structure to that kind of setting out tasks. It's something that I'm working on though, and I'm not perfect at it yet with my team is delegating tasks based on outcomes rather than delegating based on tasks. So really describing what the outcome is that we want to achieve through what we're going to ask them to do before then talking through, you know, I need you to do this particular task specifically and then bidding, you know, where we're really trying to teach people and train people to be problem solvers and kind of a motivator of people. Um, those soft skills are a lot harder to coach, I think, remotely. And so there's a lot mm. of work we have to do on that. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, the uh, in what not in not within Avon, one of our one of our other businesses, um, we had a a graduate. He's he's now moving on, and I think one of the one of the key lessons there is because that was a remote role from straight out of uni. The management of that individual we probably didn't adjust, or I say his his particular manager, the the, the managing director of that of that company. I don't think he probably thought through the how the management of that was going to go, having never really, you know, having always had experience of managing graduates in the office to then have the first graduate from day one being remote and really, you know, being much clearer about what what's expected of them and when they need to be checking in um, and and the levels of output that are required. Because I think that actually the productivity that we saw um, from this particular individual is lovely guy, um, and it's not really his fault. It's like we 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 weren't setting out our expectations of him clearly enough, and because of that, 
we lost out, but particularly he lost out as well because he wasn't able to get those touch points and that amount of feedback that mm. he should have had um, and that he would have had had he been in the office and we were managing him kind of like he, he'd been in the office. And you know what it's like, you've got a million and one other things that you've got to deal with on, on any given day to day. And these things can kind of slip off the radar. So, yeah, yeah it sounds it sounds like you kind of got and obviously the benefits of being a larger organisation. And it's that I suppose a management uh, approach and management training uh, is probably a, that little bit more um, more detailed and thought through. Which is what um, you'd hope from a big local authority, wouldn't it? And I think that's what they're lacking. Yeah. To the original point is that just that they're of the scale of a, you know, Newham was, you know, a few thousand employees, you know, it's a three billion turnover order book you know turnover business and turn organization in terms of all the land property developments housing etc owns um and would it would it have been investing as heavily as mace has in professional training on how to manage remotely well-being etc i'm i'm not 100 certain given all the pressures it would have um i, I would say though just because just to round this off because there is a, there is stuff for you know you and i to work on definitely in how we support uh, graduates and apprentices remotely. One thing that frustrates me, though, and if any of my graduates, and I know probably at least one apprentice in my team who watched this because she's an absolute machine and, and wants to absorb every single piece of information, is that they don't ask enough questions and, they are, and they don't give feedback. And I find that quite frustrating that I don't really get, and maybe, that, maybe that's a reflection on me, but the, the, the I think when you're in the office a lot, it's not it's natural to kind of give mm. informal feedback and tell people what you do and don't like and 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 have a bit more kind of discussion remotely because I kind of see people now once every two weeks because when our in office periods combine and we happen to get the desk because we're on hot desking and desk together in our zone we have a zone for desking um, I just don't get that feedback for the team and I do feel more disconnected working remotely that with the team just because there isn't that natural feedback loop of hearing what yeah. they're thinking what they want to do are they busy are the tasks they're working on interesting do they understand where we're going as a team do you understand the outputs do they understand priorities do they understand what i'm thinking about so they can understand how they fit into that overall vision of where we're going as a global business and a global team um that doesn't feel as strong um post pandemic certainly yeah but listen i think that that you, you can ex you can extrapolate that into the man managerial level as well. I think if you're not having that daily contact, unless you're being very deliberate around it, um, you're going to miss that for sure. So yeah, it's, look, it sounds like you're thinking about that quite nicely. Um, what's going to happen if you? I say if, but for your sake, I hope hope you're successful. What's going to happen with your role at Mace? Will you continue to work at Mace, or will, uh, uh, what, once once you're an MP, or, or, or how's how's that going to work? Are they going to I, kind of keep your role on, on 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 hold for you? No, I, I can't imagine. I don't. I can't imagine how people have time to do other jobs, given the amount of effort it will take to be a good MP. I think maybe because you can sit in the back benches and do bugger all and attend a few select committees, but to go into it with wanting to make a difference. I can't imagine how anyone would have any time to do anything but, you know, politics. So um, I'm very fortunate. So Jason and I had these chats probably a good year ago, when I, probably a year and a half ago when I started looking at it. Um, long, long chats about it. And we have a succession plan in place that, you know, looks at how do we, you know, develop some people or bring new skills in or change my role to so that it's not business critical. So it's actually been a really good process for the business to be quite mature 
about how do you make someone um not indispensable how do you kind of remove that single point of failure in the business because you know not that the business of all over if i left but there's certainly a lot of knowledge and things i do that i probably haven't passed on and it drives me to pass it on but no i would i would step down from mace um i don't think the job would be able to remain open so um there'll be a succession plan and i don't know if if i don't win i don't know actually i i i think it's time for me to do something else I hope it's I hope it's within Mace. Um, I generally have changed jobs every kind of two years, and I've kind of been in this job about three and a half, four now. So I'm kind of getting itchy feet. Um, I kind of do want a new challenge. So it might be going overseas. You know, Mace is is growing massively in Asia and Americas, particularly now with with the growth in you know, like America's got the, bi the bipartisan infrastructure bill. That's a trillion dollars of spend in the infrastructure market. So there's loads of opportunities oh. to go and do interesting stuff overseas and bring all the skills I've got from UK uh, and and sort of UK and Middle East major programs, procurement delivery into those kind of markets. Asia too is growing in terms of infrastructure spend. And what we're seeing at the moment, hopefully it continues, is that the UK collaborative delivery models like delivery partner, integrated delivery partner models are being exported. So um, the programs Mesa doing in Canada, Go Expansion, which is the expansion of the um the metro that runs through kind of ontario um that's being done under a kind of a pseudo delivery partner model the first one in canada hudson tunnel which is going to be the new tunnel under the river hudson to replace the existing rail tunnel that got damaged during one of the many hurricanes um you know massive pinch point for commuters coming in out of new york every year so you know multi-billion pound program that in theory will be done under the first american major infrastructure program to be delivered under delivery partner model and we're seeing that kind of adopted in you know, as far wide as, you know, the, the, the South Asia, Australia, also you know, Middle East, Saudi, all sorts of places. So the export of the British way of collaborative delivery um, opens up a lot of opportunities for people who believe in collaboration and working together to deliver common outcomes rather than the perhaps more traditional adversarial approaches you get in, you know, consultant contractor uh, tier one kind of models or PPP or those other kind of models. It's a, it's a, it sounds like a bit of a British success story that we aren't talking enough about. Um, yeah. Um, in in terms of um, obviously conscious of time now, so as as we sort of wrap up, uh, and it, look, it's it's been really really fascinating. Absolutely enjoyed uh, this very much, and uh, yeah, hopefully we're going to have you have you on again soon. Because uh, I want to give uh, May some flowers here. What would you say is the project that you've worked on during your time at Mace that you're most proud of? Good question. Um, NHS Nightingale, probably. Well, certainly. So I was living in East London. Uh, I could see the Excel from the end of my road. Um, and uh, we'd shut down. You know, I, I drove into London on the Monday before lockdown first happened cleared my desk you know the security guard nodded me out as I walked out with I had two monitors Kate had my monitor riser I had a flip chart you know I didn't know how long I was going to be out but I went and just cleared an entire workspace and just walked out the office with it and put it in the back of my car and drove home and the next day we we're all in lockdown and we we're all set up to work work from home and then I got a call from Jason uh just saying you know what are you doing tonight hi jason you know i don't know probably doing another zoom call or, or uh 
um, an, another online game or something with my family yeah. and friends. So Zoom quiz, yeah. Zoom <laughs> quiz, yeah. Um, and he's like, well, we've been asked to go um, into the Excel to speak to them about NHS Nightingale because it, you know, and, and the story is now that it started off as kind of 30 beds or 300 beds in, in a hospital in London. And then the government decided that it needed to be thousands upon thousands of beds potentially as surge capacity as, as in the honesty, no one knew um, what what actually we would need. You know, in hindsight now we know it was it wasn't needed and thank goodness it was because it was a horrendous, potentially horrendous place to send people, you know, imagine thinking you're going to hospital and you end up in a warehouse essentially um, and, and most likely on a coma because it was designed for people who'd be coma patients. So um, you'd be and you'd wake up from being in a coma, potentially having gone into it in, under duress of having COVID and have to sit in a warehouse for two weeks while you recovered and were able to to leave. So it was, you know, a horrendous place to, and, but it was the solution, the only solution they had to the problem at the time. Um, and we all walked in and it was a bit like Reservoir Dogs. So we all had put all our suits on and kind of walked in one end. And when the Excel is empty without any, comp it is a kilometre long, massive. And down one end, were a load of shop fitters who normally did um things like there was like the, the main contractor was a small contractor who predominantly does like ward refurbishments within the healthcare sector and they were like they, they just happened to be the preferred contractor they'd kind of called because they had an existing job with the with the trust that was leading this and then most of the staff were building the bays out of exhibition stands and so you kind of walked in and you suddenly got you know i, I actually kind of felt sick you suddenly realized how the scale of this thing but in 10 days, we went in essentially to wrap our arms around this team to bring it in to bring it into a hole because you had a lot of support and a lot of enthusiasm across the industry to come in and help. But it needed that wraparound to make sure that we weren't going to burn money and not deliver anything. And with, within 10 days, we'd opened up it as a field hospital. You know, the whole the, the basement, the car park was filled with morgues. They, they put, you know, thousands and thousands of kilometres of pipe work and wiring and everything else through the Excel to turn it to enable to things like you know medical gases and it was like 10,000 individual medical gas points that had to be fitted you know the scale of it was phenomenal the impact that we could make as well so you know just basic safety standards because a lot of these people were coming from you know like the exhibition manufacturing world where they might go in and set up exhibition stands because they were the ones that were on call so these were lads who turn up in trainers and hoodies to go and work on site but they were hot works you know so we had to step in and say right you know we're going to put some minimum safety standards in place we're going to put some standards in around social distancing because at that point no one really knew what social distancing was um and we were only one kind of work stream the bill of like seven work streams that was needed to bring this thing online all the rest were you know logistics and clinical and and all sorts of stuff and i have to say it was one of the most rewarding things i've ever done because um it was really tough. Kate, Kate cried a lot when I did it because, you know, we, that was the time when we, we washed shopping. My mother-in-law would go, we'd get her shopping through, you know, Tesco shop because she was vulnerable. So she always got a slot and then she'd wash every item before she put it away. Cause no one knew. Right. So it was pretty scary. Um, but I'll always remember that. And that was kind of turning point for me that kind of, at that point I was, I was enjoying work at Mace. I was slightly wavering about where do I go next? But actually that was the kind of thing that I realized there's almost there's almost no other company that could have done that could have come in at scale when you know the country needed us most to come in and, and do that sort of difference to bring the construction expertise and knowledge of building things and that consultancy expertise to manage 
the interfaces of thousands of moving parts over a 10 day period. Um, yeah, that was probably that's probably the thing that I'm most proud of at Mace is, is what we delivered together as a team. Well, I mean, what what projects to be involved in, you know, in, yeah. very much under the public spotlight and, you know, you, yeah, you, 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 yeah, I suppose you and Jason, and the rest of your team were were instrumental in in bringing it all together. So you know, I mean, it's a it was a great it's example. Got to, it's got to give well. you a lot of personal satisfaction, no question. Big example as well as how a big business like Mace can come in and work with a lot of smaller specialists and not be a dick, right? Yeah. And not come in and take over, just come in and help and put our arms around and say, right, we're going to put some control governance, basic project controls, basic supervision standards, safety standards around this project just to make sure we do what's right. And it was really interesting. Everything we were, one of the roles that my team had as the operations team was make sure we had all the decisions documented because there was this mantra, there's going to be an inquiry one day. And and there hasn't necessarily been yet on that. But one day there'll be an inquiry and some panel of experts were saying, why did you do that? That was the wrong thing to do. Why would you do that? Why did you do that? With no context of Right, you know, we have we're in the middle of a pandemic we've never experienced in our lifetimes before. Never since the Spanish flu have we had a, a pandemic of this scale. No one really knows what we've got to do, and we're working to an absolute deadline that the government had set us because we were told that was you know safe, you know, critical for the sake of the of the country. So, you know, the, actually the governance that we had to put in behind it that was one of the the one of the most challenging things for me because that's what part of the thing that I was I was revolved in was what we finished you know when you finish a hospital you have a big list of derogations of where you've gone away from the standard they call them HBNs and HDMs like the building notes and technical memoranda and that normally takes about four months and we had like a day to put it together wow. and we're just trying to work out you know and and in the end we just had to it was it was the it was the best example of creativity of having the best brains about how do you solve these types of problems? How do you document the decisions you've made at pace in this project against, you know, all these standards so that you, so that in 20 years or 10 years or five years time, someone will come back and say, why on earth did you do that? And there's some sort of record about why we made that decision. So yeah, it was, um, it was amazing, but it, it just goes to show as well, when you get a good business working with government that, the right checks and balances are put in place in terms of procurement and everything else you know we yeah we, we did it at cost most other businesses did as well um or or um even you know there were some kind of who volunteered some time for free we had suppliers doing great things like they set up a because there was no staff area in the original plans just because of scale and space they set up like a staff garden and one of our suppliers provided you know benches and plastic grass and all that good stuff just to create a well-being space when you've been on the ward for 14 hours and all that PPE, you know, yeah, yeah. suffocating almost yourself in 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 respiratory gear that that someone could just go out and have their lunch in the sunshine. And there's mm. those little things that people just thought about. It just kind of it was just lovely. Yeah. And and and, and all that thought had gone into it and then no and then in the end no one ever no one got no one ever thank God no one ever got to use it. But exactly. Uh, and that's why I say I'm so glad no one did because you know it was it was capacity for those who you know would have been in you know the absolute throes of of of, of potentially dying from covid yeah. and i'm so glad the pandemic wasn't that bad that we had to use and we didn't have to use the nightingale hospitals it was, it, was a, it was a safety valve wasn't it and yeah. um you know that, that that was look uh well i mean what a thing to be involved in mike you know and i'm sure the the list of of, of other projects that probably missed the you know missed the cut were, were still probably quite impressive as well um, Mike, where can people find you? 
how can people get in touch uh anything mike reader on uh facebook linkedin twitter it's no it's, it's normally mike underscore reader but if you search for mike reader right. I, I generally come up it's either me or a weatherman in mississippi <laughs> <laughs> well um soon let's hope that the weatherman in mississippi is 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 uh is having uh is getting all sorts of online abuse because you've been successful in your uh, <laughs> like, in, in like your john quest lewis. like john lewis and it turns out there's a yeah there's a few people like that but uh, yeah the john lewis guy is probably the most famous yeah so uh mike appreciate you thank you for coming on it's been an absolute pleasure um it's been a long one as well uh so we might might skip this one into a couple of parts but thanks for coming on and uh we'll talk again soon Cheers, mate. Thank you. A big thank you goes out to the official sponsor of the Property Funder podcast, Avonmore Capital, a property bridging and development lender located here in London. They, as much as me, understand the importance of somebody's story and how they got to where they are. Lending on projects from just £250,000 across the entirety of England and Wales, their understanding of all development backgrounds and can help support you at any stage in a scheme even if you just have one brick down visit www.avonmorecapital.com to find out more about how they can help you in your development journey thanks so much for tuning into this podcast i hope you can go away having learned something new and even picked up some new things to apply to your day today catch us in the next episode for another interesting story